0: It is today, and you are about to find out about Portland's rock and roll past. This is a Kick-Ass Oregon History walking tour. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindberg, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff.
1: This podcast is a self-guided walking tour of some of Portland's historic rock and roll venues. You can listen to it as a regular podcast, or you can get your ass off the couch and actually visit these locations as the ghost host tells you interesting facts about them. I originally wrote this tour for Portland Center Stage at the Armory, who wanted to host a few walking tours before their new show, Wild and Reckless, a concert event with Blitz and Trapper. The show runs through April 30th, 2017 and there's a promo code kickass all one word to receive 10 bucks off the tickets for that show as well as Lauren Weedman doesn't live here anymore the armory's ticketing website is pcs.org you can find out more and get the linkage in the show notes for this episode on our website orhistory.com But we also thought it would be fun to share this walking tour with you, dear ass kickers. So today's podcast is brought to you by Portland Center Stage at the Armory, inspiring our community by bringing stories to life in unexpected ways.
0: Let's get some self-guided walking tour technicalities out of the way up front. During this self-guided walking tour, we'll have some directional instructions to help you along the way. If you ever find we are getting ahead of you, Simply press pause. As you walk, listen for the... Important instructions will soon follow. For instance... The tour is best started from the corner of West 10th and Burnside, right outside Powell's Books. You might wish to begin the tour by standing awkwardly on the street corner while you listen to the following introduction. Consider looking judgmentally at any obvious tourists. Portland, Oregon has been known for its prolific rock and roll scene for some time. While for years, this hard-earned reputation has been overshadowed by the national successes of bands from our rainier, shittier neighbor to the north, nonetheless... Portland has had quite a few bands, from disparate genres and over many decades, that have achieved national recognition. Today, we're going to take a tour of some of the physical locations that significantly contributed to the construction of this generation's old rock-and-roll setting. And, as you'll hear and see, a pretty thorough survey of said scene can be found on Portland's equatorial bisector itself. Burnside, baby! Obviously, other parts of town contributed to the fostering of Portland rock and roll. There were many historically significant clubs and studios and public squares in downtown and the inner east side, too. But there is a great representation of this growth right on, or just a block or two from, big old, gritty, tattered and battered Burnside and it's all nicely organized within the constraints of a compact and reasonable walking tour. Besides, Jello Biafra didn't tell us about some rednecks and a phone booth by the Kentucky Fried Chicken on Sandy, did he? Rock and Roll Portland didn't just pop up of its own accord. Years and years before, a distorted three-chord riff spat from a tattered, overheated amplifier. Portland had a love of live music, and those foundations are important to recognize too. Portland's jump town in the Williams District was lined with packed black jazz clubs. The Avenue, as it was called, was nationally known in the 1940s. These jazz clubs were harbingers of the multitude and diversity of rock clubs that would pop up in the 80s and 90s. The Golden Canopy Ballroom on Jansen Beach could host 4,000 patrons at a time that danced to the live, big-name orchestras that came through town. And half a century before that, Portlanders wanted a place for protection, but also a place for recreation, largely through live music. Now, let's walk north, that's with the direction of traffic, on 10th Street, until we almost reach Davis you are going to pass the Armory Annex. Be sure to look up on the old brick building and see the groovy seal of the state of Oregon. It is best viewed from across the street, in front of Little Big Burger. As you walk and listen, be sure to watch out for traffic. The Californians who live in the Pearl do not give a fuck about you and your safety. The Armory at 128 Northwest Eleventh. The original armory was opened on the south half of the block in eighteen eighty eight. It was to serve two hundred and fifty men and to help protect Portland from feared anti Chinese unrest and other civil concerns. The soldiers' needs quickly outgrew the original space, so the annex was erected by the county to give the National Guard a more suitable space for conducting their martial drills. The annex was to be a
2: monument to Portland's patriotism and
0: enterprise, and at the time was considered
2: an ornament to the
0: city. It is a gorgeous building, hunkered down beneath the steel and glass and concrete of the new Pearl District, looking like something from a Ronnie James Dio video. The city of Portland's historic resource inventory gives a rather dry less D.O.-esque description of Oregon's oldest armory. Crenelated turrets rising from corbelled corners at entrance. Pentagonal tower at corner of building. Entrance is compound rounded arch with simple archivolts. Loop window in tower and turrets. Brick rustication on all segmented arch windows, as well as multiple-course rowlocks Stone ashlar. Head to the corner of Davis and 10th, and at about 8 feet high, you'll see the building's cornerstone, which says Annex 1891. Take a left, heading west, and have yourself a leisurely stroll up Davis Street along the side of the armory, stopping at the corner of Davis and 11th Street. I'll have lots to say as you walk this short block, so either walk very slowly or prepare to lurk. Music has always been a vital component of the armory's past, even extending back to its very first inception, the laying of the cornerstone of the building. On March 14, 1891, the cornerstone was placed, and the 1st Regiment marched down Burnside to 1st Street, much like the route of today's walking tour, and then marched back for the festivities. The soldiers were said to have made a fine appearance, dressed in their new uniforms with their shiny, polished weapons. They marched in good time with Colonel Beebe as the head of the parade on his horse. Right behind him was the regiment band. Marching back to the armory, the band played Reminiscences of Our Soldiers and a composition written for the occasion titled An Ode to the New Cornerstone. It was noted that the band is deserving of credit for the excellent music that was rendered during the ceremonies. The first regiment band, is an interesting example of the wave of emigrations that Portland saw at the time. It was diverse, from far-flung corners of the world, and filled with men who came west looking for new opportunities. The music rendered by the 1st Regiment Band at the Armory last Wednesday evening on the occasion of the formal opening of the Annex was considered excellent by all who attended and showed the performers to be genuine artists. The band is in better condition than ever before. Under the present management, its membership largely consists of musicians who formerly were connected with the best organizations of the day, among which are Kappa's seventh regiment band, Gilmore's twenty second regiment band, Liberati's sixty ninth regiment band, and Thomas's orchestra, all of New York City, and the sixth regiment Mexican Band of Mexico. These musicians, after completing their season with their respective bands, have drifted west and, naturally preferring to be connected with a military band, have cast their lot with the 1st Regiment band for the coming season. The band is under the able musical direction of Mr. August Tillman, who at an early age received his musical education at the Conservatory of Music in Brussels,
2: Belgium, after which he entered the Carabineers' military band at 85 pieces, the largest and best in Belgium.
0: Kappa's 7th Regiment Band played a well-received program in August of 1892. The band opened with Rubinstein's Triumphal, the first time it had been heard in Portland. Swiss Shepherd was presented, as well as a selection from Lucia de la Mormor, and the Salvation Army march closed out the evening. But the piece de resistance of the performance was Kappa's Battle of Gettysburg. The band was assisted by an armed detachment of the First Regiment, which was just outside the west end of the armory, while the battle was at its height in the composition.
2: It was made realistic by vigorous skirmish firing, now and then accentuated by the booming of cannons.
0: The armory provided a public space for Portlanders to have some amusements. Baseball games, dances, plays, circuses, and performances of all sorts, and lots of live music was performed in this hall for over 70 years. It was an awkward space for music. The annex measures 200 by 100 feet and is two-and-a-half stories high. It was one big oblong-shaped room and had a circular gallery and an orchestra stand at the west end. Wooden bleachers could seat up to 5,000 spectators with hundreds more in the second-floor gallery. In 1917, the 4,500-seat Municipal Auditorium, today's Keller Auditorium, became the leading large venue in Portland. The armory's dreadful acoustics inside a long brick hall was no match for a performance space designed to accommodate spectators in comfort. Orchestras and symphonies and concerts moved to the new auditorium, and the armory became more known for its amateur boxing bouts. In 1950, wrestling promoter Don Owen saw an opportunity in the empty armory, when I moved in there, I brought the furniture with me. Everything. Bleachers, ring. There wasn't anything in the building. It wasn't even being used. It cost me ten grand, and people said I was crazy. Owen operated wrestling matches at the Armory for 18 years and had many sell-out shows. It's time to walk south, back towards Burnside. About halfway up the block... Go ahead and stop. You can see the separation between the annex and the new Henry condos. This is where the original armory was until 1968. That's the year it was sold to Blitz Weinhard Brewery, who tore down the 1888 section to put up a parking lot. The annex was used as a warehouse. The entire block was put out for a minimum bid of $300,000. Blitz Weinhard was the only bidder, and secured the block for just over $302,000. That's a bit over $2 million in 2017, though. This purchase saw Blitz Weinhard expand to owning three adjoining blocks of downtown Portland, which you will walk by much of today. And that much real estate allowed for many, many, many more bottles of beer on the wall. This block allowed cheap-ass Henry's private reserve to spill by the barrel through the taverns, bars, and shitty rock-and-roll clubs up and down Burnside, across Portland, and throughout the state of Oregon. Seriously consider for a moment where the fuck we would be without Henry's. Thank you for your service to the Armory. We do appreciate it. Now, walk up to Burnside and take a right walk west toward 13th Street. As you do, we'll start talking. In 1972, the Oregon Liquor Control Commission made a decision about booze that would have a significant impact on Portland's rock and roll history. The OLCC finally allowed for live music in Oregon taverns. Live music and alcohol, two great flavors that go great together, were united at last. A winning combination. Just think of how many shitty bands all of a sudden became... bearable. In the decade, maybe decade and a half before, live music was common in Portland, in beatnik and hippie coffeehouses and teenaged-focused establishments. Soda fountains and shit like that. In 1957, Scotty's Drive-In, located on East Burnside hosted teen dances as DJs spun rock and roll songs. But Portland rock historian S.P. Clark noted that with the 1972 booze shift, the emphasis leaned from more sitting and listening music to dance-oriented music in adult venues. As you're walking along 13th Street, you'll want to move yourself to the south side of Burnside, Head just past the Little Bikes Big Fun sculpture, the one that looks like a big bicycle shish kebab, then look across the street. We'll resume our tour after the following song ends. Listen as you walk, and then press pause if you haven't reached the corner of 13th and Burnside by the end of the song.
3: Across the sea, I sail the ship
0: Studio, today's Skylab Architecture, 413 Southwest 13th. In 1963, a Portland band recorded one of the hottest and most controversial songs the nation has ever heard, and it was recorded right here at 413 Southwest 13th on April 6th. The band was called the Kingsmen, and the song was Louie Louie. The Oregon Encyclopedia calls the Kingsman
2: The most successful and influential rock and roll band Oregon has produced.
0: Rolling Stone wrote that they had produced
2: One of the 50 most important recordings in the 20th century, dude.
0: Yep. It's all because of that dumb little song that you can't even understand. Two Portland bands... The Kingsmen and Paul Revere and the Raiders recorded the same song in the same studio within a week of each other. The Raiders version of Louie Louie was more popular locally, but of course no one talks about the Raiders version of Louie Louie now, do they? No, it was the Kingsmen version of Louie Louie that peaked nationally and drew the wrath of the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation himself, Mr. J. Edgar Hoover. The version of Louie Louie that we hear was the second take of the recording session and cost $36 to record. Some say a local disc jockey from KISN convinced the Kingsman to record the song. Others say it was a demo for a cruise ship gig. Jack Ellie yelled the lyrics into a Telefunken Boom microphone that was hanging overhead. In a little 10x10 room with a three-track recorder right off of Burnside Street, Rock and roll history was made. Rock historian Peter Bleka called the song
2: The sloppiest two minutes and 42 seconds of rock and roll ever captured on magnetic tape.
0: The Kingsman's version hit number two on Billboard's chart for six weeks in early 1964. Artist Richard Berry originally wrote and recorded Louie Louie in 1957 as a kind of bad rendition of a Calypso-style song. Some say he air-quote borrowed the iconic riff from a Cuban song that may have itself been pinched. Barry wrote the words for Louie Louie with a made-up Jamaican patois, like you would ever pick up on that cultural appropriation, because no one even knows what the hell the words are in the Kingsman's version of the song. But because of all of that theft and hijacking and imitation, The New Yorker's Anwen Crawford calls the song infinitely renewable. So don't sweat your shitty band's cover version. There are more than 1,000 recorded versions of this song. Yet, it was those same indecipherable words that really caused some trouble for the Kingsmen across the nation and truly are one of the many convoluted legacies of the song. It was thought by many teens at the time that playing the 45 record at a different speed would reveal really dirty lyrics. And thus Louie Louie was obviously obscene. Federal investigations began.
1: The FBI took this Louie Louie shit very seriously, or at least on the surface. The FBI laboratory in Washington, D.C. studied the song and released a report in May of 1965.
0: Three additional copies of the phonograph record 45 rpm bearing on one side the title louis louis brackets richard berry and brackets the kingsman have been submitted to the laboratory one of the records was submitted to the tampa office one record was submitted by the san diego office and one of the records was submitted by the indianapolis office because the lyrics of the recording Louie Louie could not be definitively determined in the laboratory examination, it is not possible to determine whether the recording is obscene. The FBI has posted some of their files on the investigation into Louie Louie on their website, and we'll link to it on this Walking Tours page on our website, orhistory.com. Some of it is fun to read, and the letters from concerned parents our Epic.
2: Dear Mr. Hoover, Having admired your life and work for many years, it is with trepidation that I write to you. Being a mother and a teacher, I have been disturbed by the alarming increase in pornography and abjectly implore your advice. It all began this winter with a group of vocalists called, quote, The King's Men. End quote. Appearing at a local hall, they plug their million-dollar record, "Louis Louis." Dear Attorney General, Mr. Robert Kennedy, who do you turn to when your teenage daughter buys and brings home pornographic materials being sold along with objects directed and named at the teenage market in every city, village, and record shop in this nation? My daughter brought home a record of "Louis Louis," and I after reading that the record had been banned from being played on the air because it was obscene, proceeded to try to decipher the jumble of words. The lyrics are so filthy that I cannot enclose them in this letter. This land of ours is headed for an extreme state of moral degradation. What With this record, the biggest hit movies, and the sex and violence exploited on TV... How can we stomp out this menace?
0: The truth is, there is some actual obscenity in the song. Drummer Lynn Easton drops his drumstick at 54 seconds into the song, and if you listen carefully, you can say him say the fuck word. Yes, the real live fuck word. Obviously, the FBI investigation helped the Kingsmen sell a shit-ton of records. The song has lived on and on and on. In August 1983, San Francisco-area college radio station KFJC staged an event called Maximum Louie Louie. The station's staff tried to collect every known version of the oft-covered song and invited submissions from listeners. 63 hours and over 800 disparate versions of Louie Louie later, the staff at KFJC had accomplished... something. We're not really sure what, but they did capture and broadcast this truly special cover of the song by famed rock star Neil Young.
2: Are you all ready to roll?
0: Yeah. Why don't we uh, go
4: ahead and go for it? Okay, are you all ready? Go for it. Okay. One. Two, three, four. We gotta go now.
0: There are three or four official Louis Louis Days now. Locally, june twenty fifth and october fifth have been called official Louis Louis Days by the city of Portland within the last few years. April 11th is Richard Berry's birthday and is considered by many to be International Louie Louie Day. Local nonprofit Know Your City hosted the world's largest Louie Louie Singathon at City Hall on June 25th, 2015. About 300 sing attended. No word on the presence of Mr. Neil Young. If you haven't been arrested for It's now time to walk up to 14th Avenue, to the corner of 14th and Burnside, another intersection where people do not give a fuck, so be careful. 1332 West Burnside Street. Michael Montrose Ringler was a dance instructor who wanted a more prominent site for his dance school. In 1913, he selected a site on southwest 14th and Burnside. One of the main drawbacks of this location was the fact that the Weinhard Brewery was just two blocks away. Many generations of Portlanders remember the oppressive smell of the malts downtown when Weinhard's was making the beer. But with Prohibition gaining steam, perhaps Ringler wouldn't have to worry about the smell and the association for very much longer. Ringler's dance hall, of course, is the Crystal Ballroom which is deeply entrenched in Portland's rock-and-roll past. It is now a McMenamin's property, and you also passed a few more McProperties on your way up Burnside. They encroach on the street, much like the sprawl of the former Weinhard's Brewery. McMenamin's historian Tim Hills has written a groovy history book called The Many Lives of the Crystal Ballroom. It is a great resource, and if you're geeked out on the crystal, we highly recommend it. Hill's details that Ringler worked with a German architect named Robert Teigen to build the ideal ballroom. Oh, an ideal ballroom apparently included an auto-repair shop on the street level. The ballroom was on the third floor, above all the chaos of Burnside. The dancers who frequented the crystal were offered a separate world to focus on their craft. As Hill writes, The ballroom's high ceilings, skylights, full-length mirrors... Oversized arching windows, French doors and murals portraying expansive meadow and garden views all contributed to an enhanced perception of open space, while diminishing the feeling of confinement imposed by the room's four walls. Ringler invested a hundred thousand dollars in the dance academy, which was called Cotillion Hall. That's about two and a half million dollars in 2017. They also installed a ball-bearing and rocker system under the maple dance floor, giving the dancers the feeling of dancing on a floating floor. He opened for business on January 22, 1914. The space changed hands over the decades. Old-time dances—think square dance or line dances— theme dances, or even dances catering to Portland's black and gypsy communities were held at the Crystal over the years. In the 1950s and early 60s, black groups like Ike and Tina Turner, Marvin Gaye, James Brown, and Little Richard played this historic stage. But the hippie day shows are the ones that really cemented the Crystal in Portland's rock and roll history. The Grateful Dead played two... $2.50 shows at the Crystal, coming off their Portland State College Smith Ballroom show in early 1968. Allen Ginsberg performed, as did B.B. King and Country Joe McDonald. Some of the stoned and brown-acid days hippies remember the Crystal hosting the Steve Miller Band, Big Brother and the Holding Company, and maybe Van Morrison. Hills has been unable to verify said claims, but it sure is fun to think about. The Crystal Ballroom gave Frisco hippie bands a reason to come to the City of Roses, a theme we'll examine at another club further in the walking tour. As Steve Cosco, a musician from the Warlock, said, the Crystal was, A fragment of San Francisco's scene, plopped right down in Puddle City. Light shows, varied music, a ball-bearing dance floor, and periodic big-name concerts as the crystal gave musicians and artists, as well as their audiences, the sense of being part of a genuine happening. Far fucking out, man. The light shows that accompanied the trippy, hippie music were supposedly phenomenal. They were bubbling, swirling colored lights and shapes that enlarged and shrank, projected to massive proportions for the lovers of psychedelia. One of the light artists was Gary Ewing, dubbed Phantom of the Crystal Ballroom by Northwest Magazine in 1985. Ewing said of his psychedelic light show, it was more satisfying than anything I've ever done. Sometimes I was hypnotized by the show, and the band was hypnotized, and the rhythms and the visuals influenced each other so that the whole gets better than the parts. It was like harmonic totality. And yes, even the composer of your newfound favorite Louis Louis cover ever. Neil Young played the crystal. In the company of the rest of Buffalo Springfield, Young and friends packed the Hippie Club on March 22, 1967. No word if he actually sang the song at the Crystal Ballroom, but come on, he was a block away from the studio it was recorded in, and if he had covered said rock anthem, it might have sounded... Uh, something like this.
2: Louie, Louis, we gotta go now.
0: Still listening? Good. Now let's head eight blocks east to 6th Avenue. We're going to 125 Northwest 6th about a block and a half north of Burnside. You can cut down to Cooch and walk along that street, which has much less traffic. Or you can really get into the spirit of the walking tour and head down Burnside, baby. Just watch out for the dirty needles. It should take you about ten minutes to get there, and we'll start the splaining along the way. We'll resume the walking tour after this next song Satyricon 125 Northwest 6th it is time to discuss the satyricon not portland's first punk venue that distinction goes to the revenge club which opened in the city of roses in 1977 people tend to think of the satyricon as the classic portland punk venue in 1985 the oregonian called satyricon
2: Portland's only true rock and roll dive.
0: But they also put a disclaimer on the moniker, noting that
2: the vibes in the bar do tend to get real interesting round about midnight.
0: The club opened in 1983. George Tihuliotis started operating what was formerly named Marlena's Tavern. George, a Greek immigrant, earned a bachelor's degree in history at Portland State University in 1974. Some friends of his needed a space to stage what they called their Urban Music Exposition, and on a Thursday night in January 1984 in a cramped little shitty bar, the Satiricon was born. But George wasn't just the owner of the Satiricon. His contributions to Portland extended beyond that. The mainstream media labeled him the gatekeeper of Portland's
2: creative underground.
0: George wasn't actually the biggest music fan, but he had an interest in the culture of the music and what the bands represented, the freshness of the Reagan-era punk scene. He liked poetry and rebellion. Back then, many bands would skip Portland. They would just travel through between Seattle and San Francisco. The Wipers' Greg Sage put it well when he said that Portland in the 80s was a loggers town overlooked by the rest of the world. That was set to change real soon. This area right here was a mecca of
1: live rock show clubs in the mid-1980s. Cisco and Ponchos was further south up the street, as was the famed Starry Night. Across 6th was the terribly boringly named 6th Avenue Club, it had previously been named the Old Town Saloon, so I don't know. What do you think? Which one's more boring? Anyways, while now the Star Theater has live bands, back in 1985, its programming was porno flicks. And even though the Starry Night was a big club that could hold well over a thousand people, the granddaddy of them all was this little shithole right here,
0: the Satyricon. In the late 1980s, around 70 to 90 bands would play at Satyricon every month. Some of the bands that were perched upon the stage included Mudhoney, Pearl Jam, and Gwar. Soundgarden played in October of 1987, and Black Flag in 1984. The Dwarves had an eight-minute set. The Foo Fighters played their very first show at Satyricon. Nirvana's nineteen eighty nine into nineteen ninety New Year's Eve show is another noteworthy gig but local bands were always the darlings of the satiricon dead moon napalm beach dharma bums the obituaries and even new shoes and of course the wipers bands like slater kinney and heat miser and the dandy warhols and other portland bands are the heroes of this venue yes even fucking Everclear. There were rap shows and art shows, cabaret and Portland organic wrestling matches between Scuttlebutt and Rose City Rudeau, or Dr. Daddy and Elvis. There were fashion shows and the aforementioned shit-tons of punk rock. But the theatrics and literary performances were a passion of George's. As he said at the beginning of his satiricon career, "'I'd rather cater to poets than to pool players.' It was grungy and battered, a dirty punk club. A lengthy black bar lined the left side of the long, thin room. Black and white checkerboard floor tiles led you into the performance space, which could be packed with up to 200 music fans, casual observers, or nodding-out junkies. It was an echoey room, and it was hard to mix the sound well in that space.' Almost 30 years of band stickers and accompanying graffiti covered the walls and the small but relaxed stage. As the website In Music We Trust stated,
2: Like a museum of modern art, you see the history dating back to its unveiling in 1983.
0: The stickering continued into the men's room, which featured a real live piss trough, dubbed the most famous trough in rock and roll. In 1986, The Satyricon's jukebox scored number two on the list of top ten Portland jukeboxes. The reporter penned that, The songs on the jukebox here aren't available anywhere else. It's a mix of oldies, new wave rock, and independently produced singles by local artists. Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire sits side by side with the wipers, Poison Idea and Duran Duran. Owner George Tujuliotis said the club will put a record by any local musician within reason on the jukebox. The place scores high for guts and originality. Hopefully, by now, you've almost reached 125 Northwest 6th. But of course, there is no 125 Northwest 6th anymore. Look at the building where the addresses say 121 and 127. Somewhere between the two is the satiricon. Your best vantage point may be across the street, right on the max stop.
1: I think a lot of people in our era remember the Satyricon as a dirty punk rock club with violent metal acoustic assaults, which it was, but it was more than a stinky, stale, spillbeard smelled dirty punk club with peeling stickers on the battered, old-town walls. I think people have forgotten the art, the Elvis, the mellow and artistic crowd that might be found at a midweek poetry reading. Reporter Dee Harrington ascribed a kind of haughty designation to the space as almost highbrow she wrote that club satiricon caters by turn to outre tastes in music avant-garde wall art and performance art and occasionally poetry i mean walt curtis hosted wednesday night open mic poetry readings there for fuck's sake we spoke with terry robnett about portland organic wrestling
5: it started at the satiricon and it started by um one of the bartenders at that time named vinnie clean hands and he said he was just seeing all these like uh uh, punk rock kids and uh, musicians and stuff kind of hanging out and always want to fight each other. So He thought it would be really fun if he could convince people to put on costumes and then fight each other on stage, Was what he said the original premise was about. Um, and that would have been around 2000. Uh, so the, uh, I can speak about the Portland Organic Wrestling from when I joined, which was like 2000, 2001, after it had been going for about a year. And um, it was basically um um, once a month, the first Thursday of every month, it, uh, Portland Organic Wrestling um, performed at the Securicon to like packed houses, sold out shows, where they would do um, kind of punk rock performance. So it was, um, it was artistic, artistic in the in the sense that it was a kind of absurd absurd costumes, absurd scenarios that uh, we would create um, referencing pop culture uh, events and then a lot of nonsensical um, characters as well and then people would stage these physical altercations sometimes uh, something else, sometimes not and use all kinds of like homemade costumes, uh, lots of uh, odd On uh, materials like uh, meat and feathers and shaving cream, chainsaws, weed weed whackers, all that kind of stuff. And uh, Satyricon just let us do whatever we wanted. Um, We sometimes can't chastise a little bit or certain messes, but never anything too seriously. And then we just got to go in and play and play hard, and it was great.
0: But of course, there were fights and drugs. The Satiricon was almost a drug emporium at times, and cocaine and heroin-facilitated parties were common. Portland Police Chief Richard Walker proclaimed the Satiricon A threat to the
2: public safety, health, and welfare.
0: He was not referring to Taki's Suvlaki, which was served from a little window in the Satiricon, and is remembered by some as the best Suvlaki and Eros on the face of the planet. Cheap and open late, just how we like it.
1: On April 28, 1990, sweaty nipples and Dharma bums were playing a pack show. S.P. Clark, writer for 2Louis Magazine, tells us about the Satyricon Riot.
6: As usual, the cans were all jammed up. The cans were always all jammed up at Satyricon because The women's can, there was always this huge line for them to get in. And a lot of women would just ditch into the men's can and go in there, which created uh, upheaval, I guess you'd say, in the men's room. It didn't just slow things down. So there was a backup in the men's room at that particular time, on that particular night. So George decided, hell, I'm just going to go outside and, and... you know, go next door into the empty lot where Save More Grocery used to be, and he went back down the line, the the adjacent wall right along uh, the uh, uh, far side of Satyricon was out there, and I mean, it was old town, old old town, not new old town, and uh, uh, so he he went down the line and started pissing on the the brick wall, and all of a sudden out of nowhere, he's getting beat up by somebody, and he doesn't know who it is, and he's He's getting beat up by a guy who's wearing a little hel- bicycle helmet, and uh, he doesn't know that he's a cop. And he's getting beat by Rocky, and Rocky's got a, a apparently one of those uh, hitter things, and uh, uh, and he's hitting him. So George pushed him out of the way and, and decided he better get back in the club. He, he he had options, but he that's the one he chose was to. He thought he was being attacked by some drunk who's yelling at him, you know, this isn't a public urinal, you know, who the hell do you think you are? So George goes back in the club and he's, his wife was there that night and and, uh, and he had his own table that was right by the door, the first table at the door there. And uh, so he's telling people, he's like, you wouldn't believe what just happened to me. I was just out there taking a piss, minding my own business and I got beat up and uh, so he's in there telling the story, and then all of a sudden Rocky and a number of other cops show up and, and haul him out or start hauling him out. Well, the bar, the staff took umbrance with that, one might say, and uh, got involved, as well as some peripheral people who knew everybody knows George, and and, and everyone would, would try to protect him.
1: But billy clubs have a way of swaying a crowd. A battered and bruised group were arrested and dubbed the Satyricon Six. There was a broken arm and a silly trial, but nothing too serious came of the riot, save another classic yarn about the Satyricon.
0: The Satyricon was dubbed by the Big O as Portland's version of CBGB, which honestly sounds kind of lame. The club closed in 2003 and then reopened in 2006. It didn't stick, though, and Halloween 2010 was the last show at the Satyricon. As a final going-away bash, 13 reunion shows were organized for the final real-deal shuttering of the club. Now, let's walk south on 6th, almost to Burnside Street. I'll start telling you about that location as you do. Starry Night, 8 Northwest 6th Avenue.
6: Well, however creepy, because he just sort of gave off this East Coast kind of slippery, greasy kind of vibe that didn't float well in Portland then at all. It it would be a lot better now. He'd do a lot better now. and, And... Anyway, I won't make any assertions there.
0: Today's Roseland Theater has a storied past. This building was built in 1922 as the Apostolic Faith Church's national headquarters. And yes, this is the same Apostolic Faith Church that we talked about having treasures in its walls in our Portland Treasure podcast long, long ago. A giant sign, lit and mounted on top of the building, proclaimed... Jesus, the light of the world. It was like the white satin, white stag, made in Oregon, Portland, Oregon sign, only with a shit ton more Jesus and no red nose in December. The church folks were there until 1979, when the building sat vacant until it became the Starry Night in 1982. The Starry Night could hold about 850 music fans. Owner Larry Hurwitz kind of felt like there should be more in the 1,400 people range. Numbers are indeed an important component in the Hurwitz saga. Overcrowding at the club was always a concern of the Portland Fire Bureau. As their senior inspector, Ted Megert said,
2: We've always had to lean on him. From the time he opened, we have routinely had complaints.
0: Counterfeit tickets and overselling shows bubbled up now and again, too. The starry night filled a great void in the Portland music market in the 1980s. Large national acts could fill the Memorial Coliseum at about 11,000 ticket holders, and then the Civic Auditorium at about 3,000 guests. At the top of the smaller clubs were the Last Hurrah and Key Largo at a few hundred. Satyricon, just down the street, held about 200 stuff to the gills. The Starry Night was that perfect middle ground for very popular local acts like New Shoes or Cooler or the Crazy Eights, but could also host the big touring names that couldn't fill the Coliseum, like Boy George and the Culture Club or Wang Chung or Rat with two Ts. Hurwitz would open the club when he had a band with a big enough draw to make that happen. In 1987, he would average about 12 to 16 shows a month. Other memorable acts included Twisted Sister, Motley Crue, The Band, Stephen Stills, Tina Turner, The Bangles, The Temptations, B.B. King, and of course, the hilarious comedian Gallagher. Hurwitz opened the club on December 22, 1982, with a show by Portland stalwart Billy Rancher, and the Unreal Gods. The club was shut down that night by the Portland Fire Bureau for failure to meet safety code regulations. Local musicians liked the space. Good lighting and a good sound system, and Larry's operation was regarded as reliable. They also liked that when a national touring act came to play the Starry Night, he would often have a local band open the show, which was a good exposure for local musicians. But there was often trouble at the Starry Night, and Hurwitz didn't seem to be too interested in working with the authorities to solve these problems. A classic example was on Sunday night, February 3rd in 1985. Hurwitz had a 10-band rock and roll benefit for musician Billy Rancher to help cover some of his debt from his cancer treatments. The Fire Bureau received a call that the Starry Night was dangerously overcrowded. Fire Inspector Lieutenant Barrett came to the club at 9 p.m. and found around 1,300 to 1,500 people in the venue, which was well above the approved capacity of 812. One musician accused Hurwitz of deliberately overselling the show. Larry said that with all the band's separate production crews, stagehands, and their extensive guest lists, the show had simply become logistically overwhelming. Starry Night was cited by the Bureau for failing to maintain exits and aisles as is required in the Fire Code. Hurwitz seemed surprised at the citation. We did what we could. We didn't make a dime on the show. Mayor Bud Clark was there and took a picture of Billy with his kid. You'd figure the city should be working with us on this, not trying to shut us down. This had not been Hurwitz's first interaction with the Fire Bureau. He had been cited before for overcrowding and had been asked to employ a head counter at the door for shows. Hurwitz had not done so. He had other issues with the authorities as well. On January 30, 1987, the Central Precinct Captain Tom Potter had to send 18 officers to quell a disturbance outside the venue. S.P. Clark has written that playing a packed show at the Starry Night didn't necessarily equate to getting paid. He wrote that, Larry's list of deductions was legendary, as SP told us.
6: Because Larry was a fixture in, in Portland and a, and a well-known shyster. He just pulled some weird shit.
0: But shit as weird as murder? Tim Moreau was a 21-year-old reedy who did publicity work for the Starry Night. Moreau repeatedly confronted Larry about counterfeit tickets for a January 1990 John Lee Hooker show.
6: It's it's conceivable that Larry could be uh, accused of something like counterfeit tickets. It, uh, I I had never heard of that before, but but that that it, it, in the realm of things for his history could have happened, you know, and uh, uh, so. There appear to have been some counterfeit tickets sold for that show, and when it was discovered, was the where where the shit hit the fan. And uh, Tim Moreau was just a flunky around uh, uh, Starry Night. I I don't recall that he was uh, any kind of a, a doer and shaker in the in the hierarchy, and. Uh, so, somehow, Tim, it, Tim was accused and Larry put the finger on Tim saying, he
0: did this. And it wasn't just Larry's finger. Right here at the Starry Night, Larry and sound engineer George Castagnola wrapped a microphone cord tight around Moreau's throat.
6: Blame was cast on Tim Moreau rather rapidly before even all of this became public. Uh, uh, Tim became the fall guy essentially. Now, now, this is the part that I just cannot believe. I know Larry well enough, or knew Larry well enough. I I could not believe it. I, I that that he had had Tim Moreau killed. That George killed Tim Moreau in Starry Night with a garret of some sort in the in the basement. It, it's it's mind boggling to me. And, but there it is. That was the the bottom line for that. Tim, and then he was buried someplace in the, uh, uh, along uh, the Columbia River Highway, I believe. And, and that was that. And and uh, uh, it it took a while, but but it was uncovered that Larry and George uh, had something to do with it. Uh, and uh, uh, and that was that. It all just a very strange story and, and i uh, i i could never defend larry because he wasn't the kind of person you could necessarily defend but but i also he was always really nice and very kind and gracious to me so i, I just couldn't fat I, I could fathom counterfeit tickets and, and other kind of uh, uh ne'er-do-well kind of uh, performances, but, but not bad. That just didn't seem within his, his circle at all, but I don't know, something happened. I don't know the whole story on that, and I, I don't think anybody does.
0: Larry moved to Vietnam and was extradited for tax evasion charges in 1998, in addition to his IRS troubles. Larry pleaded no contest to the Moreau murder and was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Now, cross the street safely and walk east down Burnside toward 2nd Street. We'll resume the walking tour after this next song ends. I see a million walk the city mile
7: The ticket tape kings and the juvenile Will anybody tell me TV, radio, and counting the stars, and the telegraph poles, and each one represents the hopes of a soul, you think that God Is to be good with a sub-Saharan song. Somebody is wailing in the financial district sun. Can anybody feel the distance to the night? Oh.
0: C 214 West Burnside. This is the location for Portland's legendary X-Ray Cafe. We spoke to historian J.B. Fisher about the X-Ray.
8: The Oregonian said this about the X-Ray Cafe in 1994, the lines between trash and art were smudged into insignificance. Any honest effort was accorded respect.
1: Well, JB, thanks for chatting with us today. Um, Tell me, uh, what was the X-Ray?
8: Well, X-Ray was this really special hole-in-the-wall little place on 2nd and West Burnside in the early 90s. It was there from 1990 to 94. And it was a punk rock venue, definitely, but it was also so much more than that. Um, One person once described it this way. She said, it was kind of a loose collection of people, all kind of projecting their desires on a piece of real estate at a specific point of time. It sounds kind of weird, but it really actually is a great description, because this place was really keeping Portland weird long before anyone really had to say that. So, um, you know, there were all these amazing bands that played there, Hazel, Cracker Bash, Elliott Smith's band Heatmiser, uh, Quasi, uh, Bikini Kill, uh, Dead Moon, even bands like Everclear and Green Day played there at least once. But uh, then there were all these really unique uh, shows. Um, and you have to understand that this was a real mecca for all kinds of creative expression, uh, the likes of which Portland had really not seen up to that point. So some of those were like the clown-centric Big Daddy Meat Straw, roger music who was kind of like a fred armison prototype uh character um there was the Ernest truly uh spanking salvation show there was hitting birth which was a noise collective that featured power tools and an electrified shopping cart so there's just all kinds of crazy stuff going on so
1: looking back on it of course with the privilege of hindsight as a historian uh, what was the x-ray's contribution to portland's rock history
8: Well, it's really important to say that in addition to fostering all kinds of creative talent, including lots of seminal bands and great shows and really the whole music scene, um, it was also a sort of all ages community center for spontaneous, creative, and wayward folk kind of from all over the area, including right outside the door around 3rd and Burnside. So you had all kinds of impromptu education classes like morning Spanish class, uh, there was Mr. Fixit, who did what's called Science Fixin's Experiments on Wednesday night, right after primal scream therapy and that came right after meditation with Elvis. Um, and it was really this like creative vortex right there in the middle of Portland that spiraled out into uh, early 90s Portland landscape. Um, So you had like all these other things around, like the 24-hour Church of Elvis just over by Saturday Market. You had the Guerrilla Theater of the Absurd over at Reed College. You had the Tall Bikes, the Chunk 666 Collective, um, which some people might remember here. And that um, also started at Reed. And all this kind of spontaneous cultural stuff that was going on. And it was really like cross-pollinating, kind of mixing with the music coming out of the x-ray. And so just all this um, really unique stuff music art otherwise and i think that's really what made portland so fucking creative and and weird and cool in the early 90s
0: near the x-ray were a few other notable venues key largo was on northwest second and cooch poking right out next to the burnside bridge it opened in 1978 and was already packed on the weekends the louis la club opened in the New Rose Theater in 1981, taking over the space that had been the medieval inn. La Bamba had a capacity of 250. Rock historian S.P. Clark calls it the most significant club of the golden era, Quarter Flash, Johnny and the Distractions, that went beyond stylistic boundaries to feature the best Portland bands from all genres. And beyond costumed wenches, yeomen, and minstrels, too, one would assume. La Bamba closed later in the 1980s, another victim to an earlier wave of gentrification as the owners of the building converted it into a little shopping plaza. The punk club, The Met, was on the corner of Southwest 3rd and Burnside. The wipers played there, and Clark says that punk powerhouse Poison Idea first played at The Met. Finally, let's walk four blocks west, back the way we came to Broadway then look south along Broadway for the second most recognized marquee in Portland. You can't miss it. It's the one with the lady on it. We'll start things up after the music ends. Pause the tour if you need to.
9: I smell like a brewery, looking like a dram. Ain't got a quarter, got a postage stamp. And a five o'clock like shadow boxing all around the town. Talking with the old man sleeping on the ground. Beside the booting, now zooting, now hooting, now gone Sharing this apartment with a telephone pole. And a fishnet stocking, spike heel shoes. Strip tees, brick tees, car keys, blues. And the porno floor short, live nude girl. Dreamy and creamy, and the brunette curls. Chesty Morgan and the watermelon rose. Raise my rent and take off all your clothes With trench coats, magazines, a bottle full of rum She's so good to make a dead man come Paces and a cheese drink beer and a shot Portland through a shot glass in a buffalo squeeze Wrinkles and cherry and twinkie and pinky and Fifi. Live from gay Paris. Fanfares, rim shots backstage Who cares all this hot burlesque for me Doobies, I'm a doobies, I'm a i that is as Cleavage, cleavage eyes and hips From the nape of her neck To the lipstick lips Chopped and channeled And lowered and lugered And the cheetah slicks And baby moving She's hot and ready Creamy and sugared And the band is awful And so are the tunes Doobie, shabby, sweet a hot day yellow for more squashing out your cigarette butts on the floor and I like Shelley, you like Jane. what was the girl with the snake skin's name it's an early bird matinee come back any day get your little something that you can't get at home and get your little something that you can't get at home it's and a cheese, drink beer and it's hot Portland through his shot glass and a buffalo squeeze popcorn front row higher than a kite and all good. Back to Now we're back tomorrow night. Marys
0: 129 Southwest Broadway We always end our kick ass Oregon history walking tours at this historic spot. This is Mary's, Portland's most famous strip club. It is even older than the shitty three-chord song we keep referencing, at least the Kingsman version, and probably Richard Berry's too, as Willamette Week writer and resident curmudgeon Martin Sismar penned, If you don't like Mary's, you probably don't like Portland. There are a few rock and roll connections to Mary's. Supposedly, Courtney Love met Kurt Cobain at the Satyricon on January 12, 1990, when Nirvana was playing at that spot. Or maybe it was at a Dharma Bum show at 1988. It depends on who you ask. What is not in dispute is that she took her clothes off at Mary's for singles. A postcard from Ms. Love hangs on the wall at Mary's. It reads, I bought my first guitar showing my teeny little titties here, and y'all were very nice to me. Heart symbol. T-H-X. Courtney Love. Oh, Courtney. All class. The Tom Waits song, Pasties in a G-String, is supposedly about Mary's. Portland through a shot glass and a buffalo squeeze is one of the lyrics, so it seems pretty damn reasonable. Others say it was likely the Carriage Room, another downtown Portland classic strip club that isn't around anymore. The dancers at Mary's don't dance to a live band like Waits, Croons, or even a piano. Today... They gesticulate to tunes that come from the cutest little jukebox right up there on the stage with them.
1: I chatted with David Greenwald, the music critic for The Oregonian, about this walking tour while I was writing it. He said he didn't think that there was too much of a thread to run between the eras and locations that we just toured and the music of today's Portland rock. He felt that there's a disconnect between today's musicians and these storied halls. Greenwald felt that today's bands have an interest in the more very recent sense of history, say Slater Kinney or the Decembrists, but not much further back than the mid-90s. Could this be a more New Portland thing? I asked Douglas, no relation, Perry about this too. Perry writes the history articles for the Big O, and just about three weeks ago penned a piece about 1990s Portland. He received quite a bit of response, and I asked him why people are so interested in that.
4: Well, I, you know, everyone, you know, their own personal history is important to them. And uh, when, that, when that jibes with something that's important on a larger level, the history of the city or our culture, um, they feel very personally invested in it. Um, And uh, I think you see a lot of, you know, when you get response to the changing of Portland, um, you know, the 1990s is key because, you know, that's when you really started to see The gentrification kick in, um, and that's so it's a real dividing line um, as to the old Portland, the working class Portland, and the newer, more gentrified, more you know upscale Portland. And so, people who were here earlier, uh, they feel something important has been lost.
1: Sometimes I don't know where I stand on this new Portland, old Portland stuff. It sounds very exclusionary, like a very weird little club. I asked Perry if this was all just a bunch of bullshit.
4: No, I don't, I don't think it's BS at all. I, the, the city has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. Um, a lot for good, some not good. I mean, that's just the nature of things. Um, but again, it's, it's about the difference between reality and our, own, and our perceptions of reality.
1: Aha, so is old Portland just a state of mind?
4: I think people who were here when Portland was uh, grittier and uh, uh, tougher, uh, that's how they think about it.
1: So I ask you, dear ass kicker, is there value in walking around these storied Portland rock locations of yesteryear? Is it history or is it just an exercise in nostalgic remembrance? What's the value besides art and your bipedal movement and well being? And what is old Portland? Are there waves of old Portlandness, old, old Portland, and old, 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 old Portland? Just something for you to consider as you sip your post walking tour beverage. And good luck finding a good Henry's on draft.
0: Wow, you're still with us. Thank you for not getting run over, ass kickers. This is the end of our tour, but it doesn't need to be the end of your Portland rock and roll explorations. You can walk back up Burnside toward the armory from where we first started, or you can head further south and visit some of the former clubs that were downtown. The last hurrah was in the basement at 555 Southwest Alder, a mainstay through the 80s until it closed in 1987. The punk club 13th Precinct was located on 13th and Taylor. The rodeo was on Southwest 2nd and Salmon. Eli's was situated at 424 Southwest 4th with a bar upstairs and downstairs, so two different bands and two different genres could play at the same time. The Stadium Inn was further up Burnside on 20th. But of course... You must be so thirsty after such an exhaustive tour. How about a drink at Mary's Club? Bring your singles. It's quite rude not to tip the dancers. They always appreciate a dollar or two for the jukebox.
7: Why don't we do something? Okay, man. Really get it on. Okay, let's go. Live. I'm Dick Rock. I love to get a
3: chance to play.
7: I think it's about the happiest sound going down today. The message may not move me, or mean a great deal to me. But hey, it feels so groovy to say. I dig, I can Tina Turner when they start to do their thing. every hot burner a dish to fit a cane james brown leaves me with fractures from what he manufactures i just wig out when he starts to sing.
9: go ahead with your bad self yeah
0: Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from orhistory.com. We hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by Portland Center Stage at the Armory. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Cank Crispin and Andy Lindberg. Citations are available on request, Kickass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. Follow us on Instagram at Kickass Oregon History. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more kickass Oregon history in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at orhistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. Well, however creepy,
6: because he just sort of gave off this East Coast kind of slippery, greasy kind of vibe that didn't float well in Portland then at all. It it would be a lot better now. He'd do a lot better now. And and
0: anyway, I won't make any assertions. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. I
7: really want to thank you, Cass. Cause we did a rock and roll
0: ORHistory.com